I am smell like a rose that somebody gave me on my birthday deathbed. I am smelling like the all rose right, that right, somebody Kenneth, gave me. Get to the I'm episode. Dead and bloated episode. Yeah, uh, we're gonna do core the debut album of Stone Temple Pilots from 1992, right? Dead and bloated. Uh, no. I asked you to watch the movie Dead and Buried. Not not dead, dead and bloated. What, uh, but STP dog. Anyway, uh, I, all right, whatever. Um, before we do record, <laughs> we just moved to Hawaii. That's why, like, we've been on this hiatus. Um, it's the first time we've recorded in a while. I was going through, you know, all the stuff we were packing up and what I was gonna take with me. I left behind these photos. Can you just hold on to these photos? For me i sent them to you the you know it was in that that box you got what are they photos of it's like an art project don't worry about it uh sure uh, no problem can you fix these hands <laughs> <laughs> welcome everybody to watch if you dare a horror movie podcast hosted by a coward me and a movie monster boy my co-host aaron in which we watch horror movies from all ages and subgenres, and we discuss how scary they are for newbies like me and how relevant they are to the horror community and horror fanatics like aaron and we also get into the social relevancy and fears and phobias associated with these films and everything with that you heard in our very creatively put together introduction we have been on a bit of a recording hiatus uh hopefully for you guys it'll be just like i think we're only going to be like a week behind from the last episode we put which was jennifer's body with the great vp morris but for us it's been a minute since we've recorded so aaron how have you been doing i'm in hawaii and you're right now riding out a hurricane uh yeah as we speak hurricane ida is smashing into the coast we'll see where this is going i guess we are far enough inland that i don't think it's going to be that big of a deal for us now but you know we've got friends and family all across the gulf coast so definitely uh stressful and concerning right now so yeah what it is and talking about real life horror for a sec uh both you and i lived through katrina yep were you in high school because i was a junior in high school when katrina happened yeah that was the summer before my senior year of high school yeah so that was the summer before my junior year of high school and i was in new orleans you were in the mississippi area so it's kind of ironic ida's currently hitting you know for for you guys this will be weeks later but the moment of this recording ida is hitting on the anniversary of katrina literally the same fucking day yep funny how that works for any of our listeners who are in the southeast we hope you made it through this okay both Aaron and i are a little stressed out you're still kind of in the area aaron and i have a lot of family and of course like you said earlier we have a ton of friends still in this area too so hopefully everyone makes it out okay but let's get away from that since it's been a while i have a feeling we are gonna have a lot of recommendations so let's move on to our recommendation segment in which aaron and i discuss other horror recommendations that are different from the movie we're actually going to be covering today be it other horror movies comics tv shows video games books etc just any horror media we've consumed so we can recommend to each other and then hopefully you our audience here's something that sounds interesting that you may want to check out. So, Aaron, I'm sure you have a lot of horror that you've consumed since we last recorded. Uh, what, what you got? Uh, so, you're correct. I have watched a lot of stuff 
some of it rewatches. So I, for instance, finally got around to listening to the Stephen King audiobooks for Carrie and Salem's Lot, which I have seen both of those movies a ton of times. I rewatched both of them afterward just for shit's sake. Salem's Lot, I enjoy the movie because it's Toby Hooper. Yeah. The book was fine but the book definitely i think is a little bit mean-spirited in some places and and not in like a way that's enjoyable to read or listen to and it's also just it's tedious it's tedious in a way that i know a lot of people feel that way about the tv movie but i honestly am always more engaged with the tv movie than i ever was with that book carrie on the other hand i fucking loved carrie carrie was fantastic that book is phenomenal and genuinely disturbing and scary there is so much potential for expanding that story and doing more with it that i'm kind of surprised we've still only ever had one remake i guess one tv remake one movie remake so i'm kind of surprised i'm sure stephen king has referenced carrie in other books and like it's taken place in his like you know weird shared universe was carrie kind of somehow directly related to firestarter so i feel like those two would be like hand in hand in terms of unofficial sequel to one another. They kind of are. Firestarter was not written by this point, obviously, but they both also tie into his more recent novel, The Institute, which is all about children with varying psychic powers, right? Whether it's telekinesis or pyromancy or whatever, pyrokinesis, I guess, not pyromancy, that's magic fire. But yeah, like it, it all kind of does tie in in his Stephen King universe and a lot of his other, you know, cities and towns and stuff like that's mentioned in this book. But the structure is very interesting because, I mean, I've seen the movie a million times, but the book is kind of structured where you're getting all of these testimonies and you're hearing chapters being read from books about the incident and these studies that have been done about the incident years later. So it's kind of one of those things where people are looking back on it and saying like, oh yeah, there was this massive event that happened with this girl who was supposedly telekinetic and tons of scientists have studied this whole thing this entire time. And you know now it's like this thing everybody knows about, blah, blah, blah. So it's a lot of the survivors going back and like talking about their experiences and you're getting a lot of that. That stuff as framework for the main story, which the movie definitely does not include any of that stuff. So all of that was super interesting. The religious angle of the mother, like that's been a criticism of the movie is Piper Laurie is just so hyperbolic about all the religious stuff. But the book is basically that. I was very surprised how close the movie adapts pretty much all the like storyline of Carrie stuff. Like even the dialogue is very... Very, very close. But yeah, the, the book was very enjoyable. I, I definitely dug it. It was fun to go back and rewatch that movie again. So Heather and I had a great time watching that one night. So quick question. Uh, you said you listened to the audiobook for that as well as Salem's Lot. Did they have any celebrity voice work? So Carrie was actually narrated by Sissy Spacek. Okay. Salem's Lot was not. Salem's Lot was just kind of whoever the like random house stock guy was. Or <laughs> who knows, it might have been a serial killer in prison because that's what uh, yeah. a couple of them did as they they read books. So yeah, this wasn't Ed Kemper, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> this was definitely not old Bumble, but just being like, yeah. And then the vampires moved in and they uh, opened up an antique store where they sold old shit to old people. I fucking hate old people. No, it was not him <laughs> being weird. <laughs> 
too bad. So yeah, I definitely checked out some stuff that I've seen a few times. I listened to a podcast that is tangentially horror because it's about a real-life serial murder that has been unsolved. And uh, this was one of the more disturbing things I have consumed in a while because the story is just fucked up and it's a real life story oh okay there's way more weight to it when you know oh this actually happened to somebody right so the podcast is called root of evil the two hosts yvette gentile and rasha pecoraro are both sisters and you wouldn't know it from looking at them but that's part of kind of where this story gets off to a start because the entire thing starts off about this woman who was given up for adoption to live with a black family because supposedly her father was black and her mother was white. And this was in the 1940s, I think, late 40s. So that was still a very taboo, unacceptable to society thing. Her family was rich, blah, blah, blah. So the mother had to give up the baby. The girl went to go live with a black family because she had been told, oh, you're half black so yes you're gonna go live with a black family so you feel more with your people in air quotes right and everybody's like this girl's not fucking black at all what the hell is going on right and so it's this girl all through her teens and into her early 20s basically trying to figure out what actually is going on with her family right right and so she discovers all this back-end drama and all this family weirdness and so you have that side of the story and then her daughter's the two daughters that are the hosts of this podcast. The mother who gave up the child, her name was Tamar Hodel. And the daughter that she gave up is named Fauna Hodel. And the patriarch of this whole family is George Hodel, who was the Surgeon General for like Los Angeles County during this time. And he was like a big wig in the society, like rich guy, asshole, right? right? And okay, so we have all that. And then you have these two grown women who are now digging into all this family stuff and learning about a lot of this with their mother who passed a few years back. And she's pulling up all these interviews with their grandmother and going through all this family history, right? So they're learning about all this. Yeah. In the meantime, their great uncle, so the mother who gave up her daughter, her brother, who is kind of the black sheep of this family of rich art elite LA kind of people. He was like, yeah, fuck this, bye. I'm going to go be a cop in San Francisco. Okay. Right? (laughs) And so he ends up finding out that his father was a suspect in this murder, and he had no idea. And this was a murder so infamous All the cadets were, like, trained around this murder as, like, a what-if, no-win scenario, sometimes you just don't figure shit out kind of thing. And it was mind-blowing because he was like, wait, what the fuck, my father was a suspect in this? And nobody told me, ever, and I'm a cop. (laughs) So you have him on one end, and then you have the women of this family on the other end. And this is, like, a big, spread-out, disparate family that all of them very much did not speak to each other. They were very on separated terms. Right. Everybody was just so different in this family but this one thing kind of pulled them all together the murder 
is the fucking Black Dahlia murder. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) They are pretty much like 100% sure at this point that the grandfather, George Hodel, is the one who murdered Elizabeth Short. Wow. There's been, like, books written about it now. This podcast kind of breaks open a lot of it. There was a TNT miniseries movie thing with Chris Pine recently. But, yeah, this show was... It's rough, man. It's rough hearing about, like, a lot of the stuff that happened in this family because there's incest and rape and sadomasochism (laughs) abuse and murder and just everything up and down you can possibly think of child neglect drug use right everything but like this dude george hodell is kind of the absolute definition of the nightmare rich elite artsy fartsy i am transcending my humanity to become something more through the act of like evil essentially like he's basically that kind of person and it's aggravating obviously because you know he's dead he's been dead so there will never really be any justice for him necessarily but this entire family has kind of come back together around this entire thing in the last couple of years so you know they've all at least tried to like come to some level of acceptance of their family's kind of fucked up history and again I'm not necessarily spoiling like oh the big punchline of this thing because I mean that's literally the thesis of the podcast is hey what if our great grandfather was like the dude who committed the Black Dahlia murder here's all the evidence we have so it's pretty interesting but man it's a rough listen so again that's Root of Evil who, who are the hosts again? Yvette Gentile and Rasha Pecoraro okay I'm gonna have to uh, add this to my list of stuff to yeah. uh, listen because this sounds fucking wild definitely not something to just put on while you're like washing dishes hanging out with savannah but you know it's definitely worth a listen because of how twisty and turny the whole thing is and again just something that we've brought up constantly is how much hard evidence just goes by the wayside and how people manage to like slip through the cracks and how people manage to talk their way out of things like this is just a thousand percent one of those cases of oh this is just the one that you kind of got sloppy on and kind of made a point of being hyper gross with and they found her body how many other people did this guy actually murder though potentially and we just will never really know the full extent you know that's what's all also really scary about it is how much deeper does the rabbit hole go and what's crazy is this guy hobnobbed with a lot of big important people in the film world and the art world yeah he was best buds with fucking man ray and like yeah. rachmaninoff and like all these other kind of random people if if there's any conspiracy theories out there that have a lot of validity to them it's the elite doing fucked up shit and like never getting caught for it yeah like i'm finding that time and time again but even just like again we brought it up a few times in the past you know serial killers rubbing elbows with politicians like you know yeah these type of areas attract similar personalities and they're all sociopathic yeah uh unfortunately well there's another movie with similar themes that i will wait and talk about on the next episode i'm trying to spread out some of my recommendations i mean this is literally a movie that like i just watched this morning so i'll i'll wait and mention it on the process but yeah. some of the yeah. some of the same themes right so right. 
as far as reading goes, uh, I did read the first three issues of The Nice House on the Lake. Oh, yeah. Which you brought up on the last episode, and I will not go super deep into that because you already discussed it a good bit, but excellent writing. I'm still a little bit confused on who all the characters are because it does that thing where, like... It's a lot of characters, yeah. Yeah, it's like ten friends from all these different parts of this guy's life get together, and they all have code names like the artist and the scientist and the doctor and whatever, so it's hard to kind of keep track of who's who but god dude the artwork in that is so fucking good yeah and the writing is so fucking good i'm really digging it so far i hate that i'm only three issues in but i'm very excited to see where it goes i'm, so, I'm only about three issues in too and i yeah. mean because we moved i'm not going to be able to catch up anytime soon but i think i said it last episode i'll say it again it is like a horrific turn on like that old childhood wish of just what if you and all your best friends lived in a mansion where everything was taken care for you like meals and everything yeah and you could just live and be friends and like have fun it takes that idea which i certainly have had that wish growing up as a kid even as a teenager but like what if it took that idea and just really made a horrific spin on it aaron and i are kind of purposely beating around the bush because the reveal is so worth it the reveal the of what's issue. actually going on yeah is is interesting yeah so yeah that's all i'll say about that one since you mentioned it last episode but the one i want to talk about is the silver coin which I'll talk about now because the first arc of it is finished. Okay. I have been reading this one for a while now. It is an anthology series, and Michael Walsh is kind of the main ringleader of this whole thing. He does the artwork for the entire series. He also writes the last issue of this first arc. The other writers are Chip Zdarsky, Kelly Thompson, Ed Brisson, and Jeff Lemire. That is quite a superstar list of writers yeah chip and kelly alone are like two of my favorite current writers yeah each of them is writing their own issue and each issue is like a self-contained story that you know of course they all interconnect right but the entire idea is there is this cursed fucking coin that kind of makes its way into these people's lives and kind of helps them achieve fame or overcome oppression or it helps them like become whatever that's the whole idea is it's kind of like a wish fulfillment kind of thing but then of course it you know goes terribly off the rails bad by the end so it's great because every issue is like a complete little micro munch story written by people who are like industry leaders amazingly great artwork throughout the entire thing and they're all very very different stories like literally the first issue is band in the 70s when when disco is taking over everything why can't we be successful oh I don't have a pick. What is this weird silver coin I found in this box of my dead mother's stuff? Cool, let me use that to play with. Now I'm a rock god. Everything's taken off. Oh, things go bad. One issue is in a fucking post-apocalyptic nightmare Blade Runner future. One is set in the 90s at like a slasher summer camp kind of thing. One is set in the 1600s, like the witch kind of Puritan era. So the first arc of it is pretty fucking great and volume two is about to start with joshua williamson rom v vita ayala and matt rosenberg writing (laughs) man 
They're pulling in the writers, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you know, if you just got to come on and like do a one shot kind of thing with that yeah. as like your premise, you know, that's got to be fun to just jump in, do one, get out. But yeah, I would definitely recommend checking that out. Again, the first arc is finished, so you should be able to pick up that trade pretty soon. I think it comes out maybe in October, but that is definitely worth checking out. And again, like concept that would make for a great TV show or yeah, absolutely audio drama or anything else. Like this is the kind of thing that the basic concept of it is solid and you could take that into a bunch of different arenas okay and then let me hop to movies real quick so i was very curious about some of arrow's recent releases from the last few months one is their daimajin trilogy from 1966 it's a uh, trilogy of japanese movies that are essentially like versions of the golem story where there's like a group of villagers who worship this mountain deity who's trapped inside of this giant stone warrior statue bad things happen to the villagers they're oppressed there's some kind of injustice and then you know in the last 10 minutes the statue finally comes alive wakes up and it turns into like a giant tokusatsu story with this giant man in stone warrior suits smashing through villages and just murdering all the like bad guys right fuck yes that sounds great they were a lot of fun and I, I watched all three of them in the same day they're all three different directors but they're all variations on that same exact structure just right. told slightly differently or in a slightly different area of Japan so the environment's different the first one is very forest bound the second one is set in a lake water coastal village the third one is in like snowy mountain kind of area and you know they're a little bit tedious but I mean they're all under an hour and a half these are like hour 20 minute long movies so they're not huge investments but you know they're all about like a rival group taking over murdering all the like leaders of that village or that clan and taking over and enacting cruelty on the villagers and you know just two or three people pleading to the mountain god you know please come avenge us and you know like I said by the end he wakes up and just goes and wreaks havoc so that was fun this is a series by Dai Dai Film. I should have asked Heather how to pronounce that. Um, but anyway, this is the film studio that was responsible for stuff like Rashomon. Gates of Hell, Ugetsu, Sancho the Bailiff, the Zatoichi movies. So, like, they've done a lot of major, major Japanese movies. They also have a trilogy that Arrow just recently announced that I mentioned to you, Derek, as well. That's going to be the, like, Yokai Monsters series. We have brought up Yokai Monsters on the podcast a few times, which are, like, oh, yeah. Japanese spirits and all these kind of weird different configurations. Arrow is also doing a box set of those movies that I am going to check out out and maybe try to talk about on the next episode but those were all done by the same exact studio as well too that did the Dimogen movies as far as different cultural supernatural type legends and myths uh, the yokai are one of my favorite and i know like we have talked about them a few times on our podcast this was a recommendation i threw out a long time ago but for our listeners if you want a good representation of some of the more like demonic yokai check out the two video games neo and neo 2 they have some pretty horrific yokai and they are the yokai are pretty much the common enemies in that game two of my favorite yokai are actually bosses in the second game where they're two horse head demons that are like guardians of hell and like sometimes they just get bored of hell and they come out and like raise hell for lack of better terms in the real world 
funny you mentioned that because there is actually a storyline in the Hellboy and the BPRD comics recently that involves those two specific yokai. One of them is the first boss of Neo 2, and it is quite the fucking introduction to bosses in that game. Yeah. Uh, so that series is definitely worth checking out. Again, I got them right off iTunes, so they are readily available for people that want to check them out. The last movie that I'll mention, again, I know we're talking about a lot of stuff, but it's been a fucking minute. Yeah. The last thing I'll bring <laughs> up is a movie that is currently on Shudder. It is a Shudder original that they picked up. It is a French movie written and directed by Alexandre Bustillo and Julian Maury called Candisha. And it was pretty fucking rad. It's kind of got vibes of Candyman, kind of got vibes of Pumpkinhead. It is a group of teenage girls in Paris, kind of the like lower socioeconomic area of Paris. And these girls are a little more like streetwise and rough. They all come from different backgrounds and it's just kind of this group of friends, right? They are into tagging and they frequently go into this abandoned building to tag the building up because it's about to be demolished. During one of those sessions, one of the girls gets assaulted on her way home by her ex-boyfriend. He kind of shows up, he's still obsessed with her, tries to rape her, beats the hell out of her, she gets away. And she learns about this myth about this like avenging spirit called Candisha who was brutally like murdered by the Portuguese and she then came back and like sought revenge. You told me about this movie like kind of off air a while ago and I looked it up and she is a real myth I mean well a mythological figure in uh, Moroccan folklore. Yeah, so she learns about this from one of her friends who is Moroccan, and so she calls upon this spirit to get revenge for Uh her, but then it Uh goes, you know, out of control, because this spirit who shows up to take revenge on this man who wronged her also just says, yeah, let me kill all the men that are in your life tangentially, and so it's starting to pick off the friends and boyfriends and fathers and brothers of all of her other friends, right? And so they're trying to figure out how to stop it. Lots of insane gore, great creature effects, because the Candisha entity kind of evolves as the story progresses because with every person that she kills she kind of levels up and becomes stronger and kind of changes appearance and form so off topic i love when creatures do that yeah this is a an example we come to time and time again but even in the mummy when he <laughs> yeah, comes very much back, that idea every time he kills like he becomes more and more complete i love that i love that little like trope especially in horror movies yeah it's very much that same exact idea beautiful shot for a fairly low budget horror movie really well shot great gore effects performances were all really solid some genuinely good scary creepy dread jump scare kind of moments it was a good mix of kind of all the different ways to affect an audience so i definitely definitely dug it i and i'm kind of curious to go back and check out some of their older stuff now but again that is candisha and it is streaming on shutter at the moment just kind of as a side the candisha has been compared to other folklore like the succubus or the siren or the sidhay from i think that's what is that irish or gaelic and that's the thing like i don't think you can clean cut because like a succubus is a very different thing from the siren 
right? Exactly. I, I don't think you can like a hundred percent pigeonhole it to like it's like this. You you can say it's like these five different ideas all put together. So I would definitely recommend check it out because it's very unique in that sense. Yeah, it's a very cultural thing. It also is honestly when I was uh, reading about the folklore itself, the closest I could compare it to is like the woman in white or the Japanese folklore of the woman who like asks you, "Do you think I'm beautiful?" and then reveals her face and like she has fangs and stuff. Sure. Yeah, it's different, but it's also very one of those things I just always find fascinating about how like there's these ideas in the human subconscious that are still sort of the same no matter what region of the world you're in. Yeah. And like I do like how there's just a lot of aspects to this folklore that are very similar to folklore in other areas of the world that developed in a completely different cultural way. Yeah, no, I love that like the premise of this is fucking awesome. Please tell me the way they summon the spirit is through tagging like runes of some kind or like summoning circles. Um, I'm not gonna spoil it, but you're kind of close. Because you said that they like to tag stuff with like spray paint, so I just think that'd be funny is if one of them looked up how to summon this thing and was like, let's just tag it all over this building and we'll perform a ritual that way yeah again you're kind of close and i'll just leave it at that okay so yeah anyway that's all i have for now what have you got all right so yeah i too have a chunk of recommendations because it's been a minute so the first one is marvel comics a little while ago they got the rights to alien and predator because of the fox merger and all that yeah so they started as of i think it was published back in may or no it might have even been released as early as March. It was earlier this year, but they started writing an alien comic under the Marvel banner. The creative team on this, uh, the writer is Philip Kennedy Johnson, who I don't rec- necessarily recognize, but the penciler and inker I do recognize. It's a Salvador La Roca. Colorist is Guru EFX. And that's yeah. where I'm not a f- huge fan of it we'll and i'll get to that, that. I'll, I'll get to that too uh the letter is clayton cowles i do like the colorless guru efx he does a lot of stuff for marvel he's kind of like one of the i guess the marvel house colorist guys but let's start with my problems with this i i know this is supposed to be a recommendation but like let's start there salvador la roca both you and i are like kind of cold on his work i will say there are moments throughout this comic because i read the first five issues i think issue six wraps up the first story arc so i've read most of the first story arc in the first five issues a lot of the comic is drawn beautifully he does a great xenomorph the problems i have is facial expressions tracing tracing (laughs) yeah and that's probably where the tracing comes in at least he's not like the guy who traces porn stars i forget that guy's name greg land yeah yeah but he does some tracing and sometimes I don't know if it's like Uncanny Valley in his artwork or what but there is some like facial reactions like when a xenomorph is attacking or something where like it just doesn't look good. The character doesn't look like they're emoting in a way that's at all I don't want to say realistic because it's a comic book but it takes me out of the book and I know for Aaron I don't know how much you would actually like this book because of the art. I mean I'm reading it because it's Alien and I'm a huge Alien fan I am still reading it but the artwork is kind of killing me. And that's a complaint I have had because I don't think we've mentioned on the show at all. But I mean, I've been reading the like Marvel Star Wars comics 
since you know the Disney takeover and everything just to kind of keep up right. with like what's current and he is maybe single-handedly the biggest issue that I have with those comics because he drew a large portion of the first run of Darth Vader and he drew a large portion of the early like Star Wars main line series issues and it's one of those things where like I know Star Wars so fucking inside and out every single frame of those movies that it gripes me when like every other fucking image that he's drawn of the main characters is clearly just a still he pulled from the fucking movies and traced and that aggravates me to no fucking end like i said it's single-handedly the biggest thing that drags me out that and the fact that he draws himself into all of his comics so the lead character in this fucking alien series is drawn to look like a tough ass dude bro version of himself which is the weirdest most narcissistic thing i can think of yeah so let's go to the synopsis of this because this is where like you and i both are alien fans even though i am very much a horror newbie alien is probably in my top 10 movies of all time yeah we both love the alien franchise you probably know way more about it than i do but i still love this franchise xenomorphs are still some of the coolest creature designs of any horror anything sci-fi whatever so yeah I'm like you. I, this was a day one purchase for me, no matter who the creative team was, because it's Alien. And I generally like what Marvel has done with the Star Wars comics. And there's a lot to like about the story for me. So basically, the story follows this guy named Gabriel Cruz, who was a security team like captain for Waylon Yutani. And the story starts off with him retiring from the Earth satellite. He's like going back to earth and he's like starting retirement he's trying to reunite with his son danny who he has a weird estranged relationship with because he works for Waylon yutani and like put his job first for most of his life aka the like of course obvious evil corporation throughout the alien corporation yeah yeah, exactly so one of the story beats i really love and this is all kind of in the first issue is that gabriel is seeking therapy but it's like weird because it's like this corpo like weird post-apocalyptic future where the Wayland yutani like basically just runs the world more than like any whatever Earth government is in place. He's seeing a bishop unit, one of the androids yeah. for like therapy, but like he's actually having a decent relationship with this android, but like at the same time, he went through some shit involving xenomorphs that like killed off his entire team. There was also a bishop unit on that team as well. So it's really an interesting dynamic right off the bat that he has. Plus it, it was interesting to just kind of see Earth in the alien universe in the future with Waylon Yutani being all over the place, even in like people's homes for like appliances and just random stuff like that. Yeah. So, of course, some shit involving his son goes down. They go up to the satellite where Gabe retires from him and this group. They try and sabotage the satellite, and oopsie daisy, Waylon Yutani was keeping experimental xenomorphs on the satellite, and of course, they break out. So Waylon Yutani is just like, hey, go fix your shit for us, or you're, we're going to kill your son. All the years of hard work he put in and retirement goes out the window because they're evil 
corpo douchebags. So that's kind of where the story starts off as he basically has to go up to the satellite and figure out what's going on. His personal mission is, is he's trying to save his son as well as recover whatever experimental xenomorph DNA they were keeping on the satellite for the company. That's kind of where the story begins. And I'll leave it there. Of course, you know, it has a lot of alien tropes that happen. Like once he gets the satellite of like xenomorphs hunting people down and all that stuff. So, you know, it has a lot of the alien comfort food goodness that any fan can appreciate but there's the artwork that you and i both are kind of cold on some of the writing is lacking i'd say yeah i don't know like what the end goal is gonna be with this weird hallucination he's having of this alien queen and when you say alien queen we're not talking like the alien queen that you see in aliens with the dollar sign yeah when we say alien queen she is in an actual human female kind of form not yeah big ultra extra giant xenomorph imagine like zerg kerrigan from starcraft but like xenomorphed we don't know if like she's supposed to be like the goddess of the xenomorphs or like just this hallucination gabe is having that is tied into his ptsd like when his whole team was wiped out by xenomorphs and all that parts of that are interesting and then other parts of it is just where is this going it's kind of a little weird yeah and so like the writing isn't the best but at the same time i think any fan of alien will enjoy it it's a fun story regardless but yeah if you can kind of like look past the artwork which both aaron and i have a little trouble with doing like it's solid enough for what marvel's doing at least with their first effort for the alien franchise now however kind of staying under this there was another comic that marvel put out kind of coinciding with this called aliens aftermath They put it out on the 35th anniversary of the second Alien movie, Aliens. And the comic book itself actually takes place years after Aliens. And it involves these renegade journalists who are trying to expose Waylon Yutani for what they are, going to the crash site of Hadley's Hope Colony, where the Aliens movie took place. This is written by Benjamin Percy inked by Dave Watcher. Art is by, and I know you like this guy, Aaron, Phil Noto. Art works much better in this one, (laughs) as you can imagine. Basically, they go to the crash site of Haley's Hope not only are they being stalked by a xenomorph, they're being stalked by like an irradiated xenomorph that kind of evolved from like the fallout of the nuclear winter that was caused by like Hadley's hope destruction that happened yeah. at the end of Aliens. And so like it's glowing instead of its blood not only being acid, it's now more like liquid nitrogen. So like instead of melting things, it's just causing like serious ice burns. Okay. And it just starts basically picking off this renegade crew. And it's a one shot. It's just one and done 35th anniversary celebration of aliens so it's pretty interesting to kind of read it after you've seen at least the first two alien movies this is kind of more of the direction i would like to see the alien franchise under marvel go like people kind of experimenting with it a little bit but also kind of following up some of the stuff from the movies and so if kind of the alien series that's going on is leaving you wanting check out aliens aftermath it's a pretty solid follow-up to the aliens movie itself have you read this one aaron i have not read aftermath yet I read most of the Dark Horse stuff that's been coming up the last few years, and for some reason I was thinking that Aftermath was maybe somehow like one of the very, very last in-progress things that they were working on, and Disney just finally dumped it out kind of unceremoniously. Um, I'm 
probably wrong about that, but that's the impression that I got. So I'm not, you might I'd be right. Probably yeah. put it off on that reason because I haven't read the last couple of story arcs that Dark Horse put out. Right. Yeah. I mean, that might have been like what the case, but they definitely did release it. I think like back in July under the Marvel banner. It was kind of confusing because when it came out, I thought it was maybe like either another series starting up alongside the Alien ongoing, or was it kind of like an Alien annual? Sure. But it wasn't either. It was just like a 35th anniversary celebration of Aliens. But moving on from that whole deal with Alien franchise and everything, if you went back and listened to our episode with the great Colin Bunn, comic horror writer extraordinaire, he brought up that he had a comic coming out at the time called Basilisk coming out for Boom Studios. I have read the first two or three issues of Basilisk because since then, I think it's on issue like four or five now. Repeating what he said because like I don't want to get too far into it because I don't want to spoil anything for anyone but to give you an idea of what happens these five individuals called the chimera show up and they're like sort of a hive mind sort of individuals but each one of them can kill people with a different sense because they use the five senses <laughs> okay and they just one day show up in the small town like from the mountain nearby and just fucking murder the entire town you know the guy who causes people to taste is causing people like to like cannibalize each other people are ripping out their eyes you know like th- all this kind of crazy shit this is all in the first issue it fast forwards to reagan uh who's one of the chimera and her ability is through eyesight so she keeps her eyes bound she is kind of overcome with guilt over what they did she leaves the chimera and she's kind of wandering on her own and the other main character is this woman who i think is one of the survivors from the town hunts her down and basically kind of kidnaps her and wants to use her to hunt down the other four chimera and just kill them all basically and I'll leave it there. The other Chimera kind of know what's happening because one of them, their ability is kind of like to see things, like to see out and see what's going on. The story is picking up from there. The other four are kind of going now to look for Reagan and try and bring her back into the fold so the five of them can be together again. At the same time, it's implied that like while she is quote unquote kidnapped, she's sort of going along with this revenge plot. Yeah. You're not quite sure, but it's very gory, um, especially when they show like flashbacks or anytime one of the Chimera like decides to kill people because there's like a scene involving a diner that's pretty fucked up with a guy who uh whose power involves taste it's very bloody very gory really fucking well written as you can expect it's cullen bun i don't know what else to say like the artwork is fantastic one of the guys doing the artwork is actually the same guy who uh, one of the he's i think he's helped illustrating berserker right now the keanu reeves comic that yeah. both you and i really like okay. yes if you haven't picked this up aaron yet uh you really need to it's it's good yeah that is definitely in my list of stuff to uh, read. I am reading another Cullen Bunn series right now that I will talk about once the first arc of it is finished so you know maybe in the next couple of episodes i'll bring it up but uh yeah that's kind of also on my list of stuff to read next yeah and so then the last comic book i'll go over currently being written under image it is called shadecraft this would be a pretty solid comic for um it's almost like it's geared more towards teenagers or young adults it's kind of like horror light but i'd still say it's under horror genre but if you have like older kids who you kind of want to try and introduce to the genre this might be a a solid choice it's an easy read it's pretty well written in terms of just like how easy it is to read through it they just got through the first story arc the first story arc has the first five or six issues i don't want to give too much away because it goes into a lot of wild directions the writer is joe henderson and pencils and ink is lee garbett 
Colorist is Antonia Fabula. Artwork is pretty solid. Pretty colorful book. But the premise is it follows uh, Zadie Liu, who's a teenager who suddenly swears that her shadows are starting to come to life. Not only are they trying to come to life, they're actually kind of trying to kill her. At least the first issue or two has a little bit of the vibe of something is killing the children. But again, this is a lot less intense horror-wise than I'd say than something is killing the children. And it's basically her trying to like go through being an awkward teenager in high school at the same time this business with her shadow is starting to arise and like she thinks it might have something to do with her family and at the same time like she's dealing with her family life which is intense because like her brother is currently in a coma and is under like home care it has a lot of really interesting themes and horror but it's done in a way that is easily consumable for a younger audience so yeah i would check out shadecraft if you haven't already as well my final recommendation is not a comic book it is music I was looking for stuff to listen to like for the trip here to the island and I was just like what other good horror punk is there besides the misfits and I found a guy named James Buffett (laughs) yeah yeah. but like I've listened to Walk Among Us like a million times I've listened to Earth AD Wolf's Blood and of course I went to rate your music and I searched like top horror punk and the first three fucking albums are uh, the misfits which is fine like I, I don't mind the misfits as much shit as uh, we dunk on Glenn Danzig. You know, Misfits early stuff is pretty decent, but there really is not a lot of other horror punk, surprisingly. So I dug a little deeper and actually it was number four on the list underneath all the Misfit albums for like best horror punk. And the name of the album is called Dance With Me by the band TSOL, which stands for True Sounds of Liberty. And surprisingly, this album was actually released back in 1981, which was a full year before I think the first Misfits album even came out and it is kind of one of those albums that like might have come out at the wrong place wrong time because it wasn't quite fully deep into the horror punk aspect it still was a lot uh, rooted pretty deep in hardcore punk which at that time was already well established but then like the misfits came out like a year or two later and just completely encompassed like the horror punk scene and so this is kind of one of those albums that fell by the wayside and it wasn't really until the punk revival of the 90s when people are kind of digging for deeper cuts that this album kind of popped up again but it is one of the first examples of horror punk and death rock again i think it was just kind of wrong place wrong time it didn't set itself enough apart because it does sound a lot like the dead kennedys sure but talking about going to graveyards and like being a necrophiliac instead of being you know super like leftist material but it's good i i mean i love the shit out of the dead kennedys so yeah when you say like it's basically the dead kennedys but horror punk uh i'm in the album is an easy fucking listen it's 25 minutes long 26 minutes long probably the most well-known track on this album is probably code blue where like the singer basically is playing a necrophiliac and just kind of explicitly and kind of in a weird black comedy type of way giving an account on his sexual preferences oh god
it's kind of edgy but like edgy in the early 80s late 70s punk way uh so it is a little bit eye rolly at certain points because it's like these people are like yeah we went to graveyards and we used to desecrate graves and shit so there is a little bit of that but like at the same time it is an interesting stepping stone to what would become gothic rock and like death rock but under the punk lens and it is a full year before the misfits really exploded onto the scene i can't think of any other band beyond the misfits that came this close to uh kind of capturing that idea of horror punk and just the mentality of punk's fuck you energy along with just really dark material that horror can produce so yeah if you want like an interesting like time machine back to the 80s and horror punk that wasn't the misfits check out tsol's dance with me i've listened to this album album probably a dozen times already because like i said it's a very short easy listen have you listened to this album actually um not that i recall tsol is one of those bands that like i've known about kind of in the back of my head for a while and just never dug into so i have not but i will definitely give it a check out i have been mostly listening to older stuff just I was fucking jamming out to Stevie Wonder before we started recording, so (laughs) um, I am definitely, like, behind on music right now. I think the only new thing that I've listened to is Halsey's new album that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross both produced, but other than that, like, everything I've been listening to lately has been old, so... Yeah, well, and sooner or later, I'll probably dig into the death rock scene. It's just death rock. It's more, like, on the same lines as, like, The Cure, but we're evil. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) And so some of it's great but some of it is also just kind of like i don't know it doesn't click with me as as well as like punk does but you know I, I need to go back and listen to like some christian death or something and give it another chance and see see what else is there because like I, i'm always looking for kind of spooky recommendations we can add to our spotify playlist but also just kind of like spooky music in general um that i haven't checked out before Gotcha. All right, cool, cool. Well, let's go ahead and dig into the movie now that we've spent basically a whole fucking hour doing recommendations. Awesome. So yeah, we are going to be covering this week a 1981 movie directed by Gary Sherman called Dead and Buried. This is the road to Potter's Bluff. Maybe you've been there. Clean, picturesque full of old-fashioned friendliness, the kind of town everyone likes to visit. This is the road to Potter's Bluff. There is no road out. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. From the creators of Alien, terror brought down to Earth, dead and buried. Is there any way whatsoever to reanimate people after they have died? to get them to walk around. That guy, the one you, you came to see me about last week, what the time after the car wreck. Yeah. I just saw him. Man, he's dead. It's the same guy. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. When you die, you expect to remain dead and buried. I had a very close call. Just lie still. I'm going to give you something. It's going to make you feel even better. When you die in Potter's Bluff, expect the unexpected. From the creators of Alien, dead and buried, it will take your breath away. All 
of it. Dead and buried. Man, so I was looking up how uh, this was Jack Albertson's final live-action film before he passed away. (laughs) Jack Albertson, you mean Grandpa Joe? (laughs) Grandpa Joe, yeah. (laughs) Talk about a hell of a way to go out. I fucking loved his performance in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, he's excellent. Gary Sherman, I only glanced at his his filmography a little while ago, because, spoiler alert, guys, we were supposed to record this episode way earlier, but, you know, life happened, and... And then I moved. And so I haven't looked up like a lot about him or the cast and crew since then. But I do remember that he was a director, writer, and producer on Poltergeist 3, which I know, don't you have like a weird... Not a weird uh, fascination, uh, but... Yeah, not a weird fascination at all, because that movie fucking rules. Yeah, you like Poltergeist 3. Yeah, not a huge fan of the second one, but uh, I definitely like 3. But he's had a strange career, all said and done. So yeah, he did this movie called Deathline, a.k.a. Raw Meat, with Donald Pleasance, which is this weird hobo cannibals living in the tunnels underneath London kind of movie. He also directed Vice Squad, which is a fucking... Fucking insano movie. Um, he did Poltergeist 3 that we just mentioned, Lisa, and After the Shock. So he's had a very interesting career, but it's also kind of interesting to see like all the other people that were involved with the making of this. So, you know, again, this the basic logline is there is a sleepy seaside town, people are being gruesomely murdered, and then dot dot dot, they are reappearing seemingly as different people. And then there is the sheriff kind of in the middle of all this trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. Yeah, so, and the screenplay is interesting because it was done by two guys, but one of them is Dan O'Bannon of Alien fame. Dan O'Bannon, I'm sure we'll come back to him multiple times later on in our podcast, but like he's written some shit. (laughs) Like he's been a a part of some of the biggest genre films like there are out there, uh, including Alien. But yeah, he, it was cool to see that he was one of the writers on this movie. The thing that was so surprising for me was how low budget this was. Yeah, granted it was shot in 1980, 1981, but still even then a budget of $215,000 period that's it yeah that's crazy to me like with how like i mean this movie is not super intense in effects but it has some pretty solid effects for the time and like it has some relatively big names in it i mean fucking even robert england makes an appearance in this movie granted he wasn't freddie Kruger Robert England yet but like James Ferentino was a pretty big name at the time Melody Anderson and then Jack Albertson Grandpa Joe like you know these aren't no name actors that he has in this movie well not just that but like you mentioned Stan Winston does all of the makeup and special effects for this too and I mean he's one of the Mount Rushmore dudes right but yeah so as far as like the story goes there are these two guys named Jeff Miller and Alex Stern that have story by credits but then there's like literally nothing else to their name. So they came up with the initial germ of this and then Ron Schusset and Dan O'Bannon like really took it from there and wrote the full screenplay. Um, and kind of like you mentioned, I mean, together they wrote 
Alien, which done right there, Alzheimer. They wrote Phobia and Total Recall. And O'Bannon specifically wrote Dark Star, which was John Carpenter's first movie. That was their college movie kind of thing that they expanded into a full feature. Which they had a weird falling out, by the way, after that, which I thought was interesting to yeah. read up on. O'Bannon yeah. seems like, I mean, granted, Carpenter is a cranky misanthrope, right? But, but O'Bannon seems a O'Bannon little bit like a pain. Also seems, yeah. yeah, right. So <laughs> I could see why they didn't get along. But he also did Dark Star, Heavy Metal, Blue Thunder, which fucking rocks. And I just saw that for the first time a while back. Um, Return of the Living Dead, which is, again, one of the best zombie movies. We will get to that one. He also directed that one. And then he did Toby Hooper's Life Force and Invaders from Mars. So he did those two canon movies. And supposedly, Shusit wrote the entire thing and asked O'Bannon to attach his name to it specifically to get that bump at the time but then like he never included any of the changes that O'Bannon actually laid out so that's the weird thing is people kind of attribute this to being like a Dan O'Bannon thing when really he probably had very little to anything to do with it and he's even said like I basically read it and gave some notes so this seems to be mostly a Ron Shusett joint at the end of the day but it's weird that it still has these other three dudes attached to it but that's how fucking writing works in Hollywood, right? Quick aside to O'Bannon, and I'm sure I'm going to bring this up again and again when we touch on other movies he's done, but he died from complications of Crohn's disease back in 2009. I have Crohn's disease, and one of the things that I always kind of like find interesting with him, despite how much of like he's a weirdo, and like and when I've read up on him, and like how much of kind of pain in the ass he is, I do have this kind of weird affinity for him because of that, because of also because of how much I love Alien, yeah, and how much I love Carpenter, and I can't wait to watch Dark Star. I really need to sit down and watch that. But like one of the things I found fascinating is he even credited his experiences with Crohn's disease for inspiring the chestburster scene in Alien, which is just <laughs> like one of those things that I was less like, yeah, as someone who has been like doubled over, granted it's not coming out of my chest, but like I've been doubled over with cramping in my guts. Like, yeah, uh, I get it, man. Yeah. <laughs> like I do. So yeah, we've got those guys on the writing end. Again, this is like a weird tangential thing that I like happen to read, but there is a horror novelist named Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough who wrote the novelization of this. She was kind of already like a well-known horror novelist. So this novelization, oddly enough, like sold really well. But then, yeah, like I said, we've got Stan Winston doing the effects, which that's the main thing that people remember about this is just how fucking visceral a lot of the effects are. Let's let's kind of talk about that right now before we really go into like spoiler territory how scary is this movie surprisingly pretty scary like I got jump scared like three or four times when I was not fucking expecting to be jump scared with that said if you can handle a couple jump scare moments I think this is a pretty solid one for horror newbies especially if you kind of want to impress your friends who are more uh know the genre more bigger horror fans I knew fucking nothing about this movie until you Aaron had picked it out and it seems like it is a deeper cut I was reading up about now how it has more of a cult status but for a long time it went under the radar part of that was because of it being initially banned as video nasty in the UK which will we'll come back to what video nasty actually means but it is pretty fucking terrifying but at the same time I think with how old it is as well as just the nature of the scares some of the scares even kind of were borderline dark comedy to me yeah uh, but that might just be just me there's definitely like some dark comedy that runs through this movie for sure yeah it's not a dark comedy it is definitely a capital H horror movie first and it, it is a pretty terrifying 
happening, whether it's the visuals or the idea of what's happening and what's being implied is pretty terrifying. I think it's a good one for horror newbies, especially again, if you want to like kind of impress the horror crowd who like, if you want a deeper cut, like in your toolbox, when you want to talk to them about movies, the fears you're going to be dealing with here is fear of death in a weird way. Uh, At least that's kind of like one of the fears that I kind of interpreted from this movie was fear of death, but also a fear of losing control. Totally. That's the main thing is like, it's the hand in hand nature of growing old and getting closer and closer to death and losing control. But the way this movie handles it, I'm trying not to like reveal the thing that happens, but like the people who come back and they seem like different people aren't necessarily fully alive. And that's fucking terrifying in its own way. But then again, like it also is sleepy small town that has a super dark secret, which is of course, once again, like one of the tropes I fucking love. They're one of the scenes that's arguably the creepiest scene in the movie for me. And it's not even like a horrific scene. It's this part where like, it's kind of heading towards the climax of the movie. The sheriff is kind of running around like a chicken with his head cut off, trying to figure things out. He runs from his sheriff's office out into the street because he's about to go across the street to go to to find the mortician and he stops for a second and notices just how fucking silent and for lack of better terms dead the town is it's just gloomy there's no one out in the streets all the buildings seem it seems like a ghost town all the buildings seem like they're closed down and he stops and he looks around like what the fuck is happening and before he like rushes back to the mortician to try and look for him and like that moment is kind of a good encapsulation because like where are all the people and what are they doing right now a lot of the jump scare moments are kind of involving the townsfolk actually that opening scene so like let's go start there that opening scene where it seems like this is kind of like almost a light erotica (laughs) it goes from that to like turning into like all of a sudden fucking gang stalking to the extreme where like you get beat up by a bunch of strangers tied to a tree and then lit on fire like what the fuck talk about a horrific introduction to this movie and like a 180 in tone of like what happens and the the scariest part of the the scenes involving the town folk like when strangers are just murdering people is like they're all holding cameras and like taking your picture and like filming you as they're murdering you and they're all saying just one little things like welcome to potter's bluff that's it otherwise they just seem completely desensitized and just their only mission is to murder you and film you that's pretty fucking brutal stuff but uh yeah i uh this one of the scarier movies i would say is good for horror newbies as well as one of the deeper cuts on that note i mentioned earlier that i was initially banned as quote-unquote video nasty in the uk um in the early 80s i looked it up and just kind of long story short on what video nasty is it's a colloquial term that was popularized by the national viewers and listeners association in the united kingdom it was basically given to films that were usually horror films that were low budget and exploitation which this movie has a little bit of uh, exploitive themes to it is specifically in the beginning scene with the photographer this classification was kind of like a kiss of death for movies at least in the uk and the distribution would kind of get fucked when like the uk would slap this label on one of them but at the same time it also would cause like almost an overnight cold following because then you had people like trading vhs's being like this is video nasty like this is some dark horror like here here you go but it was later acquitted of obscenity charges and removed i don't know what year it was but in 
for a lot of the early 80s. It was basically banned in the UK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the history of video nasty stuff is very interesting and something that we might dig into a little bit further later down the road. I think we've already covered a few things that were video nasties, but quickly taken off the list or reassess years later. But, you know, it's interesting and it's one of the more innocent versions of the like, okay, cool, you're telling me I can't have this? Well, what's the number one thing I'm going to do now? I'm going to fucking seek that thing out and get it. So it's just a lot of that. This is not doing any fucking good. As a matter of fact, you're only drawing attention to these things that you don't want people to have access to, you fucking dumb dumb. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. anyway, yeah. And like also even just a smaller figure too is throughout the movie, the people being murdered in this town, right, are usually outsiders. It's usually people either passing through town or there for a vacation um, in terms of the photographer. Although he is kind of also, it's implied that he's there for a job, so he might have been lured there. But the people are there visiting this small coastal town, and they're the ones being attacked by these strangers, basically. And then they're showing up later after being killed, almost like they are now part of the town, and they're completely different people. But there's a the fear there of whenever you travel to a new area. I kind of have, like, I don't want to say cultural shock, but, like, you know, I'm, I'm now in Hawaii, and, like, I've only been here for a few days. It's a big fucking change from where I was. You know, some people have a, a legitimate fear of travel, and that's part of the reason why. And this movie is not going to help you with that fear of travel especially if you're going to like a smaller sleepy town like on the coast to kind of like relax this is like what if your worst fear was actually legitimate yeah it's like the whole town decides to turn against you on a dime you have no reason to know why and like no rhyme or reason they're filming you and lighting you on fire yeah <laughs> and i would imagine again same idea a lot of the people that are fucking bailing along the gulf coast right now to get out of the way of this hurricane are going to end up in like supreme shitty small towns across the south that have open hotels to stay at and yeah what the fuck is that gonna feel like you know same same situation yeah and and that's kind of like a fear that i don't think you and i necessarily worry as much about because like we're both from the southeast and we're both very used to like podunk middle of fucking nowhere towns but like a lot of people aren't used to that yeah to circle back around real quick to Stan Winston and the visual effects, you know, I've mentioned him a couple times now, and obviously, like, if you don't know Stan Winston, what rock have you been living under? But just to give you an idea, Friday the 13th, 2 and 3, The Thing, The Entity, Starman, Invaders from Mars, Aliens, Predator 1 and 2, The Monster Squad, Leviathan, Edward Scissorhands, Terminator 1 and 2, Jurassic Park, Congo, Relic, Small Soldiers, Lake Placid, Batman Returns, Interview with the Vampire, Isle of Dr. Moreau, Galaxy Quest, AI, Constantine. That's just the horror-related stuff that he's done. Like, to give you an idea, this dude, again, he's on that Mount Rushmore for a reason, and that's still kind of one of the biggest reason why, you know, this movie was on the video nasty list because otherwise if you take that stuff out you know you end up with this delightful and interesting twisty story with you know kind of a bombshell secret happening but it's you know it's a little bit EC Comics it's a little bit Twilight Zone it's a little bit Lovecraft right it's a little bit of all those things together but what really pushes this movie over the edge is the Stan Winston stuff that's the reason why this is on the video nasties list this is the reason why this has such a cult following in my opinion what also helps this be a cult film are the performances specifically of the totally, sheriff totally. which they're not necessarily the best
best performances, but they're so fucking over the top. His reactions, his facial expressions, and him screaming no towards the end of the movie <laughs> is wild. But then you have Jack Albertson as Dobbs, yeah. the mortician. This dude takes this movie, puts it on his shoulders, and fucking pulls it out of fire and scores a touchdown. He brings the fucking thunder, in my opinion, in this movie. And I love those moments where he just goes on a fucking rant. Yes. And he's just nonstop, narcissistically talking about his craft and his art. And you can tell it's the kind of speech that he has run through in his head a million times. And you can tell that he probably, like, just repeats this speech and this ethos all the time when he's by himself. And so whenever he does have those moments that he can just throw that out at somebody, it's just a tidal wave of narcissism. The delivery is great because it's so flat, but so passionate at the same time. It's just that this is my art and I'm an artist and what true artists do is they transcend and blah, blah, blah. And it's just incessant blockade of I am the greatest. Don't you ever fucking question what I'm doing kind of bullshit. It is on the level of Dr. Doom narcissism. (laughs) Go ahead ahead and splice in that whole speech he gives towards the beginning of the movie when he talks about why he's an artist. Forgive my preoccupation. Mrs. Collins proved to be a little more difficult than I'd anticipated. Why should she be any trouble? She died in sleep. Poor Mrs. Collins. She looked as though she'd been in a fistfight. So you put on a lot of makeup? A lot of makeup? A lot of makeup would be appropriate for the final viewing of a streetwalker. The deceased was, I believe, a retired music teacher. Congratulations. No, officer, this is child's play. I've replaced missing eyeballs with sawdust and glued the lids together. I've used bent aluminum combs for dentures. I've used the back part of the scalp when there was no front part. And I folded one hand over wadded up newspapers when the other hand had no fingers. You find all this obscene, Sheriff? Do you know what is really obscene? Look at this. Look at the work I've done. This is an art, and I am the artist. What can you remember about a sealed box, a sealed casket? That is obscene. That is the death of memory. The cosmetologist gives birth. I make souvenirs. Yeah, (laughs) fucking bringing the thought. And I love characters like this where like what they're doing is kind of something that most people think is disturbing or whatever, but they are convinced what they're doing is art. But that's the thing. He's not necessarily wrong about that either. He's uh, a mortician. Yeah, I guess they are technically an artist, but like at the same time, it's just like you never think of a mortician as an artist. It's it's kind of the same line of the tropey serial killer who thinks they're an artist. Like I just, I always love that character who is convinced what like, something that isn't normally perceived as art in their minds is like the purest art the highest art yeah totally that's part of it you know you mentioned that this is like capital hr it definitely is i definitely think that there is some black comedy to this uh, yeah yeah i do too o'bannon definitely like wanted there to be a lot more black comedy or i keep saying that it really wasn't o'bannon it was mostly shoesit but uh you know he and sherman kind of wanted there to be more black comedy to it this is like some more wild history of this movie so after the production was finished and the movie was 
edited. An outside production company bought one of the two production companies that made the movie. And then they were like, we need more gore scenes, less comedy, <laughs> and completely re-edit this shit pile. Oh, geez. So the film completely got like a head-to-toe kind of redo with more gore and that's one of the very 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 few little nitpicks about the movie is there is one particular death scene where the makeup effects do not hold up and it's one of those instances where again this new studio is like we need more gore and death scenes just shove this shit in and stan winston could not come back to do that effect because he had already moved on and was working on other shit so they got some like way low rent company to step in and do it and it's basically the only shoddy special effect in the movie but what's wild is this movie came out in 81 this was a time where like friday the 13th had come out and so there were friday the 13th knockoffs like fucking crazy in 81 yeah, and 82 and 83 right <laughs> there were way more of those than yeah. there were like small town with a secret kind of movies right you know you had the fog around the same time and it was kind of the same vibe it's a coastal town there's like a greater like history to the town and some kind of hidden secret that's going on right but it's a different flavor right the actual people of the town i feel like are more the thing that stands out in this movie as opposed to the fog yeah yeah i mean the characters in this definitely stand out pretty hard i mean sometimes like in hilarious ways because like dude ben the barber and that drunk that gets murdered yeah who's talking about boats oh god they are acting on a different planet (laughs) like and it's not necessarily good but it is hilarious like dude that drunk is like what if you asked one of us now play a drunk that talks about boats and like that's it that would be like what i would do (laughs) so speaking of that's my biggest criticism of this movie is i think the movie is maybe five to seven minutes too long which is crazy because this is like pretty much a 92 minute tight movie yeah I think some of the death scenes, in air quotes, go on just a tiny bit too long. Like, the drunk wandering around the boatyard, trim that shit up. Yeah, he talks about boats way longer than I expect. I was waiting for his fucking death, because, like, he kept going on and on about boats. The family that shows up and just, like, wanders through the abandoned house, they're in that house wandering around for, like, way too fucking long, right? Trim that stuff up a little bit. And that whole, like, scene is, they are idiots. Those two are fucking morons throughout that entire scene born victims victims. (laughs) also too yeah you're a hundred percent right you could trim like their entire experience down so much more than what what happens that's kind of a weird plot hole in this movie because you think they are the ones that actually get away by the time they drive off no one's on their car or anything it looks like they got away from the entire town it shows them leaving potter's bluff but they didn't 10 minutes later their car is in the ocean and they've just disappeared from this movie completely yeah like like that's a little bit of a plot hole but it's not a plot hole it's just one of those they show you that incident and you're led to think that they get away and then so so it's kind of that gut punch a few minutes later when it's like oh fuck no they didn't get away oops yeah i guess you're right but it needed to either be edited down or like shot in a different way i think everything involving them as funny as it is that's where the comedy is with oh i think there's a light on in that house we need we absolutely have to get ice 
priest to help with our son's swelling, which you don't, <laughs> and that house is obviously abandoned. Yeah. Despite all that being like a caricature of bad horror choices, like it's also the weakest part of the movie for me. Yeah, like I said, that's my only real criticism is I think the movie goes on for just a tad bit too long. The scene with the family driving and like wandering around in the house kind of also feels off a little bit, but yes, it does. what's weird is that has to do with fucking child labor laws. So they had to film those scenes during the day. So to give the effect that it's fucking nighttime, they literally had to build a giant tent around the entire filming area to block out all the light. And they had fans set up to ventilate all the inside of the tent, and it meant that they couldn't record sync sound, so that's why everybody in that one scene is dubbed. It's ADR'd. Yeah, yeah and that yeah. makes it feel that's kind of off, ADR'd. right? So there's, like, weird loopholes that they had to follow that put extra, like, hoops that they had to jump through in terms of making this movie, which, to your earlier point, is all the more impressive considering the budget of the movie, that they had to, like, go through these extra steps. Well, and that's a way too much effort for what they got out of everything with this family. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and that's the thing about this movie. And it's all endearing. Like, don't get me wrong. Even the low points are all endearing. But parts of this movie feel like it's a student film. And then other parts of this movie feel like, okay, this is like a legit horror movie. When you have Jack Albertson, like, and even Melody Anderson, I'd say Jack Albertson and Melody Anderson are both doing a great job acting in this movie. It's kind of tough when you get to characters who are like, way more of a caricature rather than an actual fleshed sure. out character because Dobbs and Janet are like running circles around other characters yeah. in this movie, including <laughs> the sheriff. Also, too, that's a whole nother thing that's kind of creepy about this town. Their only law enforcement is Sheriff Dan. Basically, yeah. Him and his secretary through a conversation he has in the diner with some of the locals, he didn't even have to come back to the town. Like, they had no law enforcement. He went off and got a career in criminal justice and then decided to come back to the town to be the town sheriff so like they probably went several years without any law enforcement whatsoever and then he's back and he is basically it like thankfully in this movie he seems like a decent sheriff at the same time like that's kind of a, a weird little like aspect to this town that kind of helps develop the town itself as a character is that like this town can get along without him yeah well, it's also interesting too because the town definitely feels like it is a ghost town it feels like it is a dead town with no industry dot 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 but like people just still are there what is going on what is yeah. everybody doing why is the impetus we need more people in this town right but it, there's a lot of little fun things like i like the name potter's bluff very on the nose that's a great <laughs> double entendre name especially by the time that you get to the end of the movie when you think of okay the idea of a potter's field but then also like bluff as in a joke or a lie right like that's a good one waka waka yeah <laughs> no but i mean like that's a good name for like a horror small town yeah. too in general the color palette was kind of purposely kept really really drab specifically so that red and blood pops a lot more so like everything is kind of purposely art decoed to be even more like sad and depressing and drab which again adds to that atmosphere the one thing I would say though the foggy atmosphere is nice in this kind of story right since it's like a coastal town but every single version of this movie that I've ever watched it looks really fun fucking rough in certain spots yeah so 
I am very curious about the 4K remaster of this that just happened from Blue Underground. They've had the rights to this for a while. Even on Blue and streaming, this movie does look pretty rough in certain spots, but I've heard nothing but good things about the 4K and... I have it coming. It's on the way. It's probably going to be here in the next two or three days, actually. So I kind of hate that I wasn't able to, like, reference it and really kind of zoom through and look at some scenes in particular that stand out as, like, oh, yeah, I remember that being, like, really rough to watch. Right. That's one thing that, you know, sometimes it can be tough to watch. So this is one that I definitely would recommend. Try to watch this in some kind of official capacity. Like, watch it on show. Watch it on Tubi. Watch it on disc. Don't just watch it on like youtube or some shit like that you know yeah i watched it on tubi and it's free on tubi um you have ads but it's free so yeah it's very accessible for anyone who wants to go and watch it i didn't really have any issues with visuals in this movie in terms of like the fogginess or anything like that so i don't know if it's because the version on tubi is like a higher quality version it's whatever the recent hd master was that blue underground did but there is a 4k one out now just some of the scenes with the fog like i said it's very grainy and pixelated so sometimes yeah. you're kind of squinting trying to figure out like what exactly is happening but overall i mean that's again due to the budget partly but that said there are some really good moments in this movie really creepy moments like well done creepy i'd say with the exception of the drunk the drunk wasn't as effective and the drunk is one of those that was added after the fact which is part of the reason why yeah. it kind of feels off but like the initial one on the beach that's like such a fucking wild like like, wait, what is going on? Where is this happening, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I touched on it earlier, and but like, it really does start off as a weird, almost light porn movie, and then takes a fucking turn, yeah. like, to the point where, like, the music is that sexy jazz, kind of, like, romantic on the beach music, and then goes into, like, fucking dread. And, like, I'd say both instances with the photographer are, like, pretty disturbing the girl hitchhiking the girl chance that's really terrifying and you don't even really quite see exactly what happens to her until later on in the movie like when they show you the video of what happened to her that is one of the effects that's pretty wild is seeing the before and after of her yeah everything with her like from her death to like what dobbs does to her body when he's preparing it to like when you see her murder flash on the screen later on and all those recordings All of that was some of the creepiest shit in this movie. The one of the deaths, though, that made me laugh was the fucking doctor's death. (laughs) So that's the one that I was alluding to earlier. That was the one that was not done by Stan Winston. So that effect does not quite hold up. It's still gnarly as shit, but it definitely like, oh, that's clearly a fake head. (laughs) That's clearly a dummy, right? Yeah, but the photographer and the hitchhiker girl, like those two were legitimately terrifying moments. And so we'll kind of get a little more spoiler with the movie if you want to go and watch it before we go on. It's a great movie. I think both Aaron and I can easily give our thumbs up on it. And I will say, stick with it. I was re-watching this for the show. Heather just happened to be kind of in the room. She wasn't really feeling the movie at first. She was definitely just on her phone playing a game, passively just in the room, right? But as it kind of started getting toward the end and you're starting to get some of these reveals, she was really 
really just like, okay, wait, where is this going now? What the fuck is happening? And she kind of got hooked. And then by the end, she was genuinely surprised of like, okay, that's kind of clever and interesting. And like, I kind of dig this now, now that I kind of know where it's going. So definitely stick with it. It is worth where the final destination of the movie is for sure. So I would say even I was hooked in the first scene. It's so wild, right? It's so fucking wild. And like they're filming him and taking pictures of him. I want to know the mystery. I want to know like, why are all these random people doing this to this random photographer? So kind of going to spoil territory, probably the, the jump scare, which I'll admit kind of have to confess that this one got me pretty badly. And it is kind of funny when you think about it and the way it's like ADR and everything. But the one of the ones that got me was when they show up on the crash site and it's the photographer being framed as having crashed his car and being burned in the car. And they're going up to the body uh, that's great. to like examine it. And then it screams. Yeah. The guy's not fully dead. Yeah. I fucking jumped so hard. And I, so I've seen this movie twice now because I rewatched it actually yesterday since it's been so long, been about a month since I watched it and I wanted to make sure I was fresh in my mind and it jump scared me again, even though I knew it was fucking <laughs> coming, even though like that scream is like 80 yard in and everything that was fucking freaky. And then like that poor photographer, dude gets burned alive, doesn't die, is in the hospital, charred corpse, full and, body cast, full body cast, and then gets fucking taken out by needle in eye with random substance injected in like yeah. Jesus Christ that guy cannot catch a break and this is definitely like giant fucking Mia Wallace Pulp Fiction ass needle you know that's like seven inches long giant fucking needle just got through the eye yeah it's like a Looney Tunes idea of a hospital needle yeah but like <laughs> this whole movie is kind of a tale of the sheriff's three different relationships to me it's his relationship with Janet his wife yeah. it's his relationship with Dobbs the mortician and then it's his relationship with the entire town yeah. as a whole um, with him trying to be the sheriff and trying to have some sense of law and order in the town when at first he thinks it's a serial killer slash grave robber that's going around and then it morphs into what the fuck why are these people appearing now as other people you know halfway through the movie the photographer George Lemoyne shows back up as Freddy the gas attendant yeah. and with it being in the 80s like you know there's no cell phones no internet so like half the movie is Sheriff Dan taking his picture and sending it upstate to like see if it's like the guy who's missing the photographer later on it's confirmed that like yeah it's the same guy how is that fucking possible he was murdered and how is he not like a walking charred corpse because he was like burned alive when he when he was murdered and then you have Janet and of course she's hiding something too and it's implied that like she had a history with this photographer maybe a little bit of an affair or like she hired him for a job or like lured him to the town for some other reason yeah. and then there is no moment in this movie where the wife doesn't seem sketchy mm -hmm. and it's not in the same way necessarily that you find in some of these movies there is maybe the implication that she is somehow more involved with the photographer but it's never explicit that oh are you fucking the photographer it's never just in that way it's kind of this weird yeah. facet of like what is going on with your involvement with, with the, this guy the one way or the other yeah. like where is this going that entire scene of her teaching her like first grade 
grade students about fucking the history of witchcraft was also witchcraft, pretty fucking yeah. great. Yeah. Well, and I, I love that you kind of learn, like, the rules of, like, what's happening in this movie through, like, him finding the book of witchcraft and necromancy <laughs> that she's researching. And, she's, yeah. and when he confronts her about it, she's just like, oh, it's because, you know, I'm teaching my kids this. And then later on, she is teaching her kids about it. Which, my question was, are all these kids fucking in the same, like, situation as all the adults of this town? Because there was, like, a whole classroom full of kids. What's their deal? Well, again, the family, you see their little boy in that classroom, dot, dot, dot. So where did those kids yeah, all come from? So, who do they? Who does those kids belong to? Because that's the other thing. Most of the people in this town seem like they are older than having first grade children. So why is there a classroom full of first grade children in this town, right? Yeah. So let's get to the big spoiler. And this is like Sheriff Dan's relationship with Dobbs and also Sheriff Dan's relationship with the rest of the town. Dobbs is the mortician. Dobbs, he's sketchy, but he doesn't really like try and hide it in the same way that Janet is. Like he's very bombastic. He's very in your face to the point where he is like playing games with Sheriff Dan. Yeah. Like, and he's being open about it. He's having these moments like, Sheriff Dan, you disappoint me. You like, you brought me this body. You haven't solved this mystery yet. He's obviously playing a chess match with him to the point where like it's pretty out in the open that Dobbs is doing something. Well, here's the big spoiler all the people or most people in this town are dead. And I love love the way Dobbs describes it because he doesn't go into what exactly he does. He's like, just call it witchcraft, call it science, call it whatever you yeah. want to call it black magic. Which is one element I like about this movie is it is never explicitly explained yeah. like how he's doing what he's doing. Yeah, he's bringing back everyone from the dead. And the way they kind of describe the rules like with her teaching her class and that scene as well as like the book of witchcraft, the idea of a zombie isn't necessarily a shambling thing that's craving flesh and meat. It is a person brought back by its quote-unquote master for the most part they can act like a, a person but they lack kind of like any type of thinking that isn't already programmed into them by their master well that's exactly what Dobbs is doing he has basically made this whole town his own army of the dead so to speak and he's given them relatively different degrees of free will and to act like a town and I'm guessing he is luring people or anyone who just happens to like go off the beaten path and try travel through the town he's adding to his collection of dead bodies but like that's the thing i love is like it's such a mystery of what's his end goal here is it yeah. lure people to town dot 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 conquer the world or like lure <laughs> people to town dot 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 profit lure people to town dot dot, dot. I, the closest thing you can think of is he just wants to have more artwork he just has that god complex yeah yeah he wants to like make more people and that's what heather and i were talking about was like as far as like a villain motivation it's super interesting because Again, this town is fucking dead. What are people doing? Literally. You know? <laughs> Literally and figuratively. So why add more people to this town where there's no industry, seemingly no jobs? Like the fishermen are all like sitting at the diner all day being like, oh, there's nothing we can go do, blah, blah, blah. What is happening in this town? So why add more people? Why make this town bigger? Other than just, again, his narcissism, just his God complex of, I'm just going to keep doing this because it's my thing right i'm an artist yeah. and i want to make more art yeah going back to the everything with a hitchhiker because that's like where you are shown his process yeah a corpse coming yeah and a corpse coming back to life and that whole scene is super disturbing because he basically melts off all the flesh from the skeleton and then from scratch rebuilds her with materials and corpse paint and everything else 
to a point where she almost looks doll-like, but it's that uncanny valley of it still being a person, but it's more of a doll than a person now. Yeah. I like how you're given pieces of what the magic is. Like, it seems like he always has to have, like, 1930s big band music <laughs> yeah, playing. I like that detail. It's almost like, is that part of his ritual, bringing them back to life? And then I like how, like, he dresses the girl, tells her now you can sleep, walks out the room, and then some other figure comes in and touches her head. That transition is so fucking good. It's yeah. the simplest effect, switching from the dummy that is laying on the slab that he was literally painting and working on. Camera tilts up toward him. He says his line, walks away. The camera tilts back down, and it's the real actress, you know, laying there, and she then gets up and walks away. Her physical performance is fucking on point for this scene, because, like, she rises like a zombie doll and then looks directly at the camera and it's not a jump scare but it is one of the scariest images in this movie and the thing with this whole process like the thing that is also maybe a little bit left unexplained is like who was that figure like in the black coat that touched her head and caused her to like rise after he leaves the room dot 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 who knows was that the woman or was that janet you know and is that that's i guess part of his process so the big spoilers dobbs is the villain he's the one reanimating everyone and so the reveal of all that's fucking amazing because like at one point janet early on tells her husband dan like get this film developed it's for like my my kids you know made a film project even though i apparently teaching eight-year-olds yeah (laughs) but i had them do a film project and he finally gets it developed well he starts being suspicious of janet and he looks on the film the film is of her having sex with somebody and that person getting stabbed to death and like all the town is there watching and i like too that that adds kind of an extra layer of mystery that you find out at the end and i'm not going to say it what's going on in that video specifically but i like that extra wrinkle of this is kind of confirming some of my fears but then also this is on a whole new fucking level because she's not just banging some other dude dot 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 she's murdering people (laughs) and the rest of the town is in on it what the fuck again if anybody asks you to like hold on to this roll of film for me hey can you go get these developed for me hey just take this box of like random photographs that i have just always fucking say no always say no (laughs) (laughs) well and and so that goes back to dobbs whole ritual for like bringing these people back to life anytime they're murdered they're always pictures being taken of them and filmed while they're still alive through their death like and then being murdered quick editor's note right here so i'm a dummy and it completely occurred to me why all the flash bulbs and cameras etc every time somebody dies I recently rewatched Christian Petzold's 2014 movie Phoenix, which is about a disfigured Holocaust survivor who is trying to get her life back together and figure it out who betrayed her, etc. Well, she has to have a lot of facial reconstructive surgery, and so they are referencing old photos of her prior to the camps in order to rebuild her face. So, dot 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 makes sense that Dobbs would essentially be requiring the same in order to recreate the uh, denizens of the town who have been brutally disfigured in various ways. So, yeah, that's that. Also, Derek's about to fucking spoil the ending of The Wailing, which is a delightful movie with a crazy twist at the end. So just here's your warning. Uh, If you want to watch that movie and you've not listened to our episode, uh, maybe go ahead and get your skip 15 or skip 30 seconds button ready and maybe go ahead and tap that right about now. 
And it reminded me of going all the way back to The Wailing, the idea of like the demon in that movie yeah. having to take pictures of everyone. Spoilers for The Wailing, by the way. Yeah. But taking pictures of somebody is like capturing their soul. And I'm wondering if that like kind of what Dobbs is doing is this is part of the process of this is his way of capturing their soul or whatever. Because it's definitely done in like a ritualistic way for sure. Yeah. The sheriff confronts Dobbs after everything with Janet. And that, that whole like villain scene is amazing because when he walks in like Dobbs plays all the video of all the people being murdered. Yeah. Like all the townsfolk, all the strangers who have visited. That's where you see the uh, her head smashed in, the uh, hitchhiker girl. It shows like the townspeople murdering all these people. And it's all like in this 30 millimeter or whatever, 20 millimeter film being played throughout the entire room. Yeah. And Dobbs gives his old villain speech about, you know, him being an artist. And you f- find out that Janet is also a reanimated corpse. But he reveals to Dan, he's like, because I like you, Dan, I gave her more free will. I gave her sex. I gave her romance. I made her more more like a person for you and and don't give away what the final twist is like let's just still leave that for people like no, watch, no, the, watch yeah. the movie we don't need to like recap the shit for you but just don't go into like what the final detail is no no i'm not gonna give the final final twist but like janet coming in earlier in the movie she has to leave the house after sheriff dan gets back from work I was like, oh, you know, I have beef stroganoff, but you're going to have to, like, nuke it in the microwave. And, like, when she comes into, like, the mortuary after the big reveal that Dobbs is the villain, she's asking him what he wants for dinner. And he, like, shoots her once, and she's, like, doesn't stop. Like, she just keeps asking him, like, well, you could do this, but you have, yeah. have to go in the refrigerator, and you have to nuke it. And he tries shooting her more and more, and she's not going down. Finally, he shoots her a lot. And then it's the creepiest thing of this movie, is, or one of the creepiest things of this movie is she almost realizes that, like, oh, shit, I am dead and I should be buried. And so that's when she's just like, Dan, I'm dead. Please bury me, Dan. Dan, I'm dead. Please bury me. That's fucking horrifying. Yeah. She almost regains consciousness uh, and realizes she shouldn't be alive right now. Well, a step further, the scene where, like, she runs away, he goes after her and just finds her, like, trying to bury herself in, you know, this open grave. Just that part of it also, too, is just real disturbing. And then all the townsfolk show up and they're all kind of, like, falling apart. Dobbs has to, like, do touch-ups of them, yeah. He has to do touch-ups, like, and their skin's cracking and stuff. And, like... Like, all the townsfolk show up at her grave and basically, like, give Sheriff Dan, like, we're sorry for your loss, but they're all, like, falling apart. That whole thing is creepy as fuck. (laughs) Yeah. I like when you kind of finally get some background on Dobbs, too. Just the detail of him coming from Providence, Rhode Island. That's a nice little Lovecraft nod. Again, like, I like his overall motivations for what he's doing. It's just very different from, like, your typical horror movie villain kind of thing. And... Again, just $5.40 for developing 8mm in $1980? Are you fucking kidding me in this economy? Like, get out of here. <laughs> That's the real horror. Yeah, of this really. <laughs> That's the downside of living in a small town where you have to pay that kind of money to get some fucking film developed. And, and to repeat what Aaron was saying earlier, like, we described Janet confronting him, and you realize Janet is also a reanimated corpse, but maybe given a little more free will than the others. There's still a bit more to this movie that we're not going to talk about because it, it's just too good what happens at the very very end of the movie there's more shit happening and yeah that's as far as we're gonna go as far as spoilers are concerned but yeah again like Dobbs just like his only motivation really is like I'm a narcissistic artist who knows how to like reanimate the dead and I'm just gonna keep doing that there there doesn't seem to be like an end goal beyond like I want to create artwork yeah (laughs) I think it's an interesting kind of meta thing 
in a way. You know, him, again, like you mentioned, Jack Albertson died of cancer six months after this movie came out. He, like, barely, barely made it to the film's release, you know, just to, like, seat on the big screen with an audience, and that was, like, his last live-action performance. But, you know, just the idea of him as an actor in real life and leaving a legacy and leaving something behind for all of us to enjoy, right, is kind of an interesting side of it. You know, overall, this movie's super fun, and I would definitely recommend everybody check it out for sure. Speaking of the cast... Again, we mentioned Jack Albertson. He's been in shit ton of TV stuff. Chico and the Man, Man of a Thousand Faces. Um, the subject was Roses. He won a fucking Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in that. Most people are gonna know him as Grandpa Joe from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, he was also in the Poseidon Adventure, which is one that I fucking watched a lot growing up for some reason. Um, and then Fox and the Hound, he did voice work on. Melody Anderson that plays Janet, she was in John Carpenter's Elvis movie with Kurt Russell. She was also in Flash Gordon, Firewalker, lots of TV stuff. Nurse Lisa, the like enigmatic woman who keeps showing up at all these murders scenes kind of as a seductress assassin character did you happen to recognize her because we have just covered a movie recently that she was in i recognized her but i don't remember what movie she's from so the actress's name is lisa blount and she was one of the leads in uh prince of darkness she's the redhead actress in that she is okay yeah 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 Yeah. she's got that big red mullet yeah you're right and then of course this is one of robert england's early performances as well one of the other guys that's like hanging around the diner i can't remember the actor's name he's one of those old man actors who's been in fucking all kinds of stuff but weird because i just revisited uh no country for old men recently and he's the very end of that movie who shows up for a scene and then of course james farentino is sheriff dan gillis he was in a shit ton of tv stuff the final countdown and bulletproof as well so yeah i mean this is it's a small cast and it's kind of a small movie but that's part of what i like about it is this is truly one of those like weird uncovered gems that's just kind of still there in the horror world that i don't think gets enough eyes on it no because like i i had no idea it existed but when i actually like watched it and then i read up on it a lot of people in the, that are fans of the genre recognize this movie, but even then it still felt very underrated. Yeah, and this is another one of those that I'm surprised I didn't check out sooner. Like, I only watched this movie a few years back. It, it was like right when Shudder started. The thumbnail of it was the Hitchhiker Girl before getting completely redone. It was literally just her like smashed in face and I was like, what the fuck is this movie (laughs) with this level of gore in it and just reading the like description i was like oh it's gary sherman it's shusit no bannon and stan winston did the effects hit play instantly yeah i was very very surprised by it and again like very delighted to see grandpa joe as this villain ultimately but you know it's one of those things that once i saw the poster for the movie i was like oh I have literally seen this poster my entire life. I've seen this VHS box my entire life at the video stores that we had growing up. How have I not seen this movie before now? Well, and and I I like how striking the poster artwork is for this movie, 
because it's just a face and you don't even know how big the face is it almost like looks like a giant statue face just out of the ground staring up at the sky the artwork's very surreal yeah it's this very like dark surrealistic art in terms of actual visuals from the movie you don't really have a, a visual quite like this except for maybe like when janet is trying to bury herself and the last thing you see is her face the art is very much encapsulates what's going on in this movie yeah so i think as far as like final thoughts definitely definitely check this one out it's a lot of fun it's definitely kind of a good confluence of a lot of different things coming together to make this one holistic thing so if you know again any of those elements kind of pique your interest definitely check out the movie as a whole because it's it's a lot of fun it's an hour and a half um it's readily available in pretty good quality all said and done so i would definitely recommend give it a watch have fun what about you derek any final thoughts again um i would also even recommend this to newbies as a deeper cut recommendation and one that's pretty scary uh like i said there are a handful jump scares and they are pretty uh, scary jump scares, but if you can handle them, I think you're in for a treat for something that's a bit different. But it's not so different that you're watching something that's esoteric. It's just very different from other horror movies. Low budget, but also it, it felt like a good mix between extremely competent and endearingly like student filmy but without being like too much of one or the other. And just the whole concept again, like Dobbs is like now he's right up there with Connell Cochran from Halloween three. <laughs> as far as like old man villains. Yeah. Like, uh, like, well, horror movie villains in general, like Dobbs is up there now as like one of my favorites just cause he is so fucking bombastic. And like his end goal, while it seems almost nonsensical is so well done just with the performance and the delivery of the lines. It's almost purple. It's almost Event Horizon levels of purple dialogue <laughs> yeah. uh, at some points. But yeah, no, I I just fucking love this movie. It was, and I, again, it was one that I just knew nothing about until you recommended it, Aaron. And I had a lot of fun watching it. Hell yeah. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Just any time that I'm like, trust me, trust me, just watch this. There's always that 50-50 that I'm like, oh God, he's either going to really like this or it's going to fucking backfire. You're going to be like, this movie is dumb as shit. <laughs> so that's always the fear I have whenever I like throw stuff out there like this that you've never heard of. One quick last aside, something we like forgot to touch on about this movie is the fact that in order to reanimate the corpse, you have to take their heart out. At one point, the sheriff pulls the, the photographer's casket out of the ground, breaks it open, and it's actually treated like a jump scare, but the only thing that's left in there is the heart. But when he unwraps like that cloth and it shows the heart, the heart is so fucking fake looking, it made me laugh so hard because it's obviously a rubber heart. <laughs> eh, whatever. It's fun. It's fun, yeah. All right, cool, cool. Well, that is going to be it for this episode of Watch If You Dare a horror movie podcast with me, Mansfield, your movie monster boy, and my cowardly co-host, Derek. Obviously, you can find us on all the podcatchers at this point. Please subscribe, rate, review, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate that. Um, so follow us on whatever podcatcher you choose. Um, you can also check us out on social media at Watch If You Dare on Facebook and Twitter. We also have our Spotify playlist of just spoopy oops 
Goopy Music that we keep updated. The link to that is pinned at the top of our Twitter page. And then thank you to my little brother Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for the music bumps, the beginning and the ends of all of our episodes. I, at this point, I don't know if I should even mention Gonerfest. Um, one of his bands was going to be playing there. I don't know if Gonerfest is still going to happen because, you know, there's still a thing floating around the entire fucking world that is exploding throughout the southeast right now and hospitals are full and you know blah 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 we've talked enough about that but you get the drift we'll see if Gonerfest even fucking happens but you know if it does definitely go check out his band Big Clown beyond that uh anything else we need to mention you'll try to kill us Sally but you can't you can only make us dead go on pull the trigger help us become one of our own children